Aloha. And now we continue with part two of my interview with Steve Pavlina. In this part, we delve into subjective reality, ethical non-monogamy, attracting your ideal partner, cultivating deep friendships, and deciding what character you're going to play in this wild game of life. There will also be an extended after show, the longest I've ever done, available on my Patreon, so be sure to check that out after you listen to this. That'll be at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Hello Crusoe, the word hello, C-R-U-S-O-E. Without further ado, here's part two. I love this part, possibly even more than the first part. <laughs> Enjoy. But if something is getting to you, you know, when you get criticized in a certain area and it gets under your skin, that's, uh, that, you can see that as an invitation you know, from your reality. Like the simulation is saying, hey. Andrew, you got to work on this area. You know, I'm going to keep bringing critics up in your reality, and they're going to keep picking away into, at you until you accept this invitation to work on this. <laughs> okay, Steve, I'm going to be to- okay. I'm going to share something that I wouldn't normally share, but I think this is great. You actually, uh, you did actually, you did that for me two weeks ago. I did. <laughs> you actually, yeah, because on social media, you did it. You did a broadcast, and I was like, oh man, I should really run in the morning. And I felt, <laughs> no, really. I was like, I was okay. embarrassed at myself. I was like, I need to exercise more. Like, I exercise a fair amount. I, I, I mostly enjoy being in the water when I exercise and do cardio, especially when the waves are coming. You're like, you're doing some cardio when you're, like, kicking against waves. But I was like, you know, I, I, I want to try, try that out. I want to I run more in the morning. And I've been doing it more, and it's been a good experience. I haven't been super consistent with it, to be honest. But I was like, in the beginning, I was like, Man, Steve's just got it all figured out. Steve, he's so good at waking up really early. And I was kind of beating up on myself for a bit. And then I was like, no, I, everyone's different. And I don't have to, I don't have to wake up at 5 a.m. to be a success as a person. Because for me, I'm kind of a perfectionist. And I'm like, you know, I had this idealized vision of myself in my head. And I'm always trying to get closer to that. But I think, and maybe some listeners might relate to this too, like, you don't have to be that person overnight. You know, you don't have to wake up at 5 or 6 a.m. to be your idealized version of yourself, but it might give you flexibility to do things you didn't, weren't able to do before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and so now if I, if I say, Andrew, you need to exercise more, <laughs> how, well, how does that affect you? Does it get under your skin or do you, you know, you're like, well, I'm kind of doing that. Uh, no, it doesn't get under my skin. I mean, it didn't, it was mostly like the way I was applying it because like, I'm, I'm weird. Um, I, I'm going to be really personal. My, I don't have a car right now because my lifestyle doesn't require me to have a car. I have an electric bike and this is the most personal I've been on this show before. And, um, but right now here's the funny part. Okay. Here's, here's the funny part. I don't have a battery for the bike right now. It's being replaced. So I have this bike with wide, four inch wide tires that isn't really designed to be used without the battery, but you can do it. And let me tell you, it's a workout going up and down hills and going to places with this thing, using it as a traditional bike. So I've been getting my exercise in. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not beating myself up about that. But I just, I, you've inspired me to think about uh, jogging and running more again, of like the kind of, because that's a different kind of high that I, I think I've got from that compared to biking. Yep. I used to do a lot of biking as well. Just lately, I've been more into running. I just like the, the simplicity of that. I like listen to, uh, listening to audiobooks when I go running. Mm-hmm. Uh, about, you know, play them on double speed, so then it's kind of like a double habit. You get the mental um, stimulation of the audiobooks, and you get the physical stimulation of the run combined. Just, just a nice way to start each day. I'm glad you said that, because I don't know how you do that. You're, do, you're doing it a double. You must have way less traffic, and then I, you probably have more sidewalks. That's probably part of it. Well, I run in the street, but I live in a residential area. It's very hilly, so I'm always doing hill runs, uh, right. which slows slows me down, but it really builds up your calf muscles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you invited me over to your house like 10 years ago once. That was really lovely. Yeah. Yep. So, really yeah, sweet. I mean, that, it's a residential area, so there's there's not a whole lot of traffic or cars. Um, you know, occasionally when I go running, I have to cross a street light or so, but it's, it's not like running in a downtown area, so... Um, I could, you know, I can run quite a bit. There's even a tra- uh, a trail in Vegas called the Beltway Trail, which goes along mm-hmm. one of the freeways, and you can just run for miles and miles and miles and not have to worry about any stoplights or anything. So it's kind of nice. That's nice. 
That's nice. So in terms of the subjective reality part of, I feel like I was going to turn swing back around to, has the way you looked at subjective reality shifted? Because I like, and to me, it ties in with the way you talk about life as a trainer in general. You know, like you say, life is trying to push me in this direction, or looking at the flow of life. Um, do you see reality or the universe as itself intelligent? Because you you seem to have implied that in some of your writing, and it's something I've been meaning to ask you for a while. Is how do you look at that these days? Is it is did it start with consciousness or did it start with the universe? This is kind of like a big question. Yeah. So I don't know if the universe is intelligent or not. It could be, but maybe it isn't because if I think it's intelligent, then I could just create that experience, you know, like where I'm looking for intelligence everywhere and I'm giving it credit where it's not really being intelligent, but I just think it is. So my belief is creating that impression or I think it's not intelligent. And so then I discount any potential evidence of intelligence. So I've, I've learned Mm -hmm. the problem with beliefs is when we internalize them and make them part of our identity. And we say, (laughs) I believe this. So I'm not a person who likes to say, I believe this, uh, and, and, you know, fill in the blank with some belief that's a perspective, especially one that's not falsifiable and not provable either way. Mm -hmm. So the intelligence of the universe or the existing, you know, or the fact that I don't know whether reality is objective or subjective or some combination of them mm. or some kind of reality. I don't know what kind of reality I'm living in, and I, and I will never know. And I mm. accept that I will never know. You mm. will never know. You can guess, mm. but you never really factually, rationally know what kind of reality you're in. And the simple reason is that an, an objective reality could build a simulation and put you inside of it, and then you're in a simulation, but the external reality is actually objective. Mm. Or you could be in a simulated reality, and it could simulate that it's being objective. <laughs> Uh, so right. It's really hard to prove. Either reality could fake the other one. It's, mm. uh, you know, just like in the Matrix movies, you know, there's an objective external reality, but then mm. they go into the Matrix and that seems real when they're there. So you don't you don't <laughs> actually know which kind of reality you're in. It could be some kind of dream world. You mm. you have no idea. But it kind of it kind of be, sorry to interrupt you. It kind of behaves as a dream world, though, doesn't it? It could at some points. So what what I've what I've learned is. Uh, try both perspectives. See them as a toolbox of tools. You don't have to believe in a hammer to use it. You don't have to believe in a screwdriver to use it. You can just go, oh, this is a screwdriver, and I'm going to use it on this situation because here's a screw, so let's <laughs> use it for that. And, oh, here's a nail. Let's use the hammer for that. So I switch back and forth between thinking of reality through an objective lens and, and a subjective lens. It depends on what kind of problem or challenge I'm dealing with. You know, if I want to you know, use my computer, I'll just see it as an objective device much of the time. I'll be like, oh, the keyboard, I boot mm-hmm. it up, and I know how the software and stuff, you know, if I want to go to the store and buy groceries, I maybe use an objective model there. Mm-hmm. If, however, I want to do a really interesting, fascinating, purposeful business project, I might have a dialogue with reality about it first and think, what would this do for my character? If this is a simulation, how would this train me up? Uh, and I think about that perspective. And so, Often multiple times during a day, I'll flip-flop just very naturally, you know, back and forth between different perspectives. And I I find that the most effective approach at all. It doesn't Mm. require that I believe that reality is anything. Uh, I don't have to believe it's objective. I don't have to believe it's subjective. I can use the tools of subjective reality, and I can use the tools of objective reality without having to create a conflict artificially between them. Mm. And And I think that's... I think that's a great idea. <laughs> I think that works. I can use objective science. I mm. can use the law of attraction and putting, mm. you know, intentions out there and manifesting. And, um, you know, I especially see it in my writing. Mm. Like I can, I can write by summoning an idea, you know, out of the air <laughs> if I want. Uh, I can write by objectively outlining something. It's, I can use either approach. So why not? Mm. Why not become a, a person who's a bit of a tool slut, you know, where you get to use all the <laughs> sleep around a lot with all the different per- perspectives and tools? Why do you got to be, you know, so monogamous with your beliefs uh, in, your, in your tools and how you use reality? Because we don't actually know which, which is true and we will not know which is true because, yeah. you know, objective reality is an assumption. It's not falsifiable. There's no scientific proof that reality is objective. And yeah. there's no scientific proof that reality is subjective. If there is, you should not believe it <laughs> because right. it's fake. Um, so because <laughs> of that, we're, we're just never going to know. You know, we're never going to know what it is. I mean, if if you're if you're in a dream and a dream scientist comes up to you and says, "Here's the proof that you're not dreaming," right? But you, if you're, you know, a dream that can happen in a dream. <laughs> I'm pretty sure <laughs> so, that happened once. 
It doesn't doesn't mean it's not a dream. It's you know. But it always smells. Did you feel like it always smells kind of weird? It's always a, there's always a little bit of a weird thing in like the the side of the frame of the movie in that scene. There's always something tipping you off. You're like, I can't trust this scientist. <laughs> yep. Yeah, a little bit. And and you know, and there was a period in my life where all my friends were scientists. I mean, I trust objective science, but. I think you and I look at it very similarly of like, okay, science is great in the objective realm. That's what it's for. It's for figuring out objective truth. We measure something objectively with a measuring device. If you can't measure it objectively, you can't really have a science about it, right? Mm -hmm. But you can test subjective reality tools. You can test holding intentions. You can test dialoguing with reality and see if you think there's a bit of an effect. You can't measure it in the same way you can measure uh, objectively, you know, measure things objectively. Um, but objective science but is biased too. You know, it has its own biases that are introduced by the scientists themselves. Yeah. So you never really get around the subjective aspects of reality. You can just kind of hide them or cover them up or ignore them, but you you know, they're still there. I can hear one of my science listeners screaming. Um, don't you feel like they try to correct for that though, based on redundancy and the fact that the culture of science is to poke holes in each other's theories with more data? I feel like they try to mitigate that. Sure, you can try, yeah. but does it work 100% of the time? Of course not. <laughs> you know, there's always a loophole. There's always a hole in it because you're, you know, you're dealing with human beings doing the experimenting, right. and humans have biases, and they can overlook things, and they can falsify data, and they can, you know, they can do all kinds of things. Um, Paola. Yep. <laughs> so you stole the, the, the subject for my next book, which is The Ethical Tool Slut. I can't believe that you... <laughs> yeah, that's a cool tool slut. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately, you know, the, I think the key thing that this comes down to is mm -hmm. what is your what is your relationship with reality like? What mm -hmm. really look at the relationships you have with different parts of life. That's what I that's what I really focus on trying to optimize. Is my relationship with my wife good? Is my relationship with my home good? Is my relationship with my work good? Is that flowing? Uh, is my relationship with other people, with friends good? Is my relationship with reality good? Do I trust reality? Do I feel safe here? Wherever you notice there's tension in a relationship, there's something not quite working there, then it's an invitation to go dive into that tension and resolve it. And mm -hmm. I had tension in my relationship with reality when I saw it completely objectively. Mm -hmm. And then I, tried, then I flipped over to the subjective side, and that created a different kind of tension. Mm -hmm. And then when I realized... I'll never actually know what kind of reality it is. <laughs> and when I accepted that, and I realized I could use both lenses and switch back and forth between them, it resolved that tension in a really fascinating way. And I found that I, I ended up having a much more peaceful, flowing, and even exciting relationship with reality. It was one based on mystery, but the mystery is true. The mystery is mm -hmm. real. And so I, it felt much more like I'm being grounded in truth here. I'm not guessing that it's objective. I'm not guessing that it's subjective. Mm -hmm. I'm accepting the mystery as it is. And that changed my relationship with life, with reality, and it it made it fascinating. And I, I think I think this is you know this is why it's good to float among your tools and, and explore and follow your curiosity, because ultimately what you want to do is you want to want to explore and resolve those tense relationships that aren't working for you. Mm. I love that you talk about them as lenses too. I, I know you wrote about this years ago and I thought it was such a brilliant, I think you used a object lesson of people wearing glasses with red lenses and another person wearing glasses with blue lenses. And they argue about if this object is black or if this object is red or if this object is blue and you're able to change you know, beliefs as lenses. You're able to change those lenses and, I thought that was such a brilliant way to describe the way people put on. I think you, you once described um, beliefs also as software running on a computer. You might not think that <laughs> your computer is just a word processor, right? And then all of a sudden, it does different things. And you, you wouldn't say, oh, I am always this thing. People say, I am a Catholic or I am a astronaut. But if you were that thing, you could never be anything else. Didn't you used to say that? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, like when somebody tells me they're a Christian, I always just think, okay, that's nonsense. You know, it's just a lens. You are not a lens. You are more than that. Mm -hmm. um, you can you can choose to limit yourself to looking at reality through only that lens if you like, but you won't really succeed because that's that relationship is not rational, and so it's always going to have tension in it. Mm -hmm. And the, and you know when you go and resolve that tension, you realize, well, that's a you know Christianity is a lens. It's a way of looking at reality, but it's not me. Did, did you come up with the colored lens belief thing? 
Or was that yeah. inspired from something else? Yeah, I've written about that. I don't think it's I don't think it's a totally original model, you know, <laughs> uh, put on paraglasses, put on a different pair of glasses. So. I've told dozens of people that, and I I just love that metaphor for belief systems. I wanted to thank you for that because sure. <laughs> it's a powerful metaphor. It's true because certain colors are going to filter out parts of your reality, and I think. Yep. It, it, and and do you still look at this? The, I mean, the way I look at it is the close. The best we can get is to try to get that lens as clear as possible, to accept or to see as much of reality as we can. And that's a big journey, obviously. The toughest part is identifying lenses we don't know we're wearing. <laughs> yes, that's that, that's always the trickiest one because that really expands our whole reality when we when we recognize we've been wearing a lens all this time yeah. and seeing reality through this limited perspective yeah. and what's it like to go explore the opposite. That's one of the things that encourages me to do weird and unusual um, personal <laughs> growth experiments to, to dive into and explore lenses that I'm not familiar with because sometimes you can identify a lens you've been secretly wearing but not realizing it when you just go and do something very different than you're used to you start seeing reality from a different viewpoint, from a different angle. Um, you know, for instance, uh, in 2017, I did an experiment of going 40 days of water fasting. So 40 days with no food. Yeah. And I, and I, I uh, vlogged it. I, you know, I did uh, daily YouTube videos along the way. So you can actually see me shrinking on the videos. As I go through. <laughs> um, so it's on my YouTube channel. I've seen about half of those. I got to finish it. You got like 40, vid 40 videos and some of them are quite long and very in depth. Yeah, actually, I did I did uh, 31 videos. I did videos for the first 30 days because I was originally originally planning to just go 30 oh, days, and right. then I did a final a final day 40 video. That's right. But and the day 40 video is I think the most popular one of of, of all, <laughs> has uh, over 100,000 views on it. Um, but that was it's awesome. Partly, you know, partly I did that experiment just to see uh, is it possible? Can you go like that long without food? I think the year before I had done the 17 day water fast, so I know I could go for a while, and I thought let's try going longer this time. And that changed my perspective on reality. You know, when I when I hear people saying, you know, they're going to starve if they go a couple days without food, I'm just thinking, <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, you can go about six weeks or so and be fine. Oh, okay. Because I could function just fine. You know, it's like, as long as I have water, I'm okay. Um, can I play devil's advocate here, though? Don't you think sure. a little bit of that is modulated by perhaps some of that has got to be modulated by body type a bit, like how long people can do that and maybe how much, maybe how much fat they have or maybe not. Exactly. Yeah. There's, you know, there's that, um, there's, yeah. I mean, it could be a lot of factors going into it. Um, but I've known other people who've done 40 day water fasts and they, you know, including people who've done multiple ones and they've emerged just, uh, just fine from it as well. So, uh, it's not something I'm going to, you know, recommend for people to try, but it is one of those things that changes your relationship with life. You know, when yeah. you've had that experience, you're like, oh, well, now I'm not really worried about having to go without food for a while. You know, I will do fine. <laughs> so it's almost like a less less anxiety kind of made you feel more empowered that you have that flexibility now? Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice knowing that, you know, I, I can go for weeks without food and still function okay. I mean, in a more low energy state, but I could go out and go for walks and things like that and um, you know, I just toned down my physical activity and it was a really interesting experience. So that, that was, you know, I'm, I'm glad I did that kind of, uh, kind of thing. So we were talking about subjective reality and you can apply that to any area of your life, right? Was that, yep. was that a factor in when you started exploring, <laughs> I mean, like maybe the best label would be like, hmm, alternative ways of looking at sexuality that are not main, not the narrative that we're fed. Because I really want to touch on this because you've been a huge inspiration to me. We haven't even talked about this before, I don't think. I think we may have shot a couple of messages back and forth on, on social media. But the way you look at monogamy, non-monogamy, open, poly, you had sort of a huge refactoring of that starting, it seems like, about 10 years ago. Yeah, 2009 or so, maybe even like the idea of planting planted a bit before that, but uh, kind of getting getting into that direction in 2009, I think. Was that precipitated by, were you aware of, because uh, your work actually sort of introduced me to David Dita, I don't know how you pronounce his name, and some of his, and then uh, the, John, the Johnny guy, he's hilarious. Yep. Um, <laughs> that That was a very interesting, watching that from from uh from 
from afar was really intriguing. And it sounded like there was this kind of renaissance for you reevaluating what you wanted in that area of your life. And what was, what precipitated, I mean, obviously you realized that your, it sounded like you realized your marriage wasn't a great match. That form wasn't yeah, right. It wasn't working at that time. Um, it, we were just kind of growing increasingly incompatible. We were growing in different directions, wanted to take our life down different paths. Um, and, you know, it was a good, strong relationship for a while, for many years. Um, and I don't regret being in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, eventually the incompatibilities got high enough where we just, it was kind of clear it wasn't working. We kind of wanted to move in different directions. And, and um, so later that year we separated. But before that, it's like we went to an open relationship posture and kind of, you know, began exploring that. And I, I continued exploring that after we, after, after we separated too, it wasn't that the open relationships thing caused the separation per se. Mm -hmm. It was more like exploring open relationships was kind of like a last desperate move (laughs) to, to to salvage the relationship. Like, let's see if it can work as an open relationship. But as I've seen with many people who get into open relationships when you're already in one, it's often, you know, kind of like a sign that the relationship itself is not working. Um, it's pretty tough to transition, isn't it? It, it, it is. tends to work better if you start open and stay open or start monogamous or exclusive and stay. <laughs> yep. And so then in my relationship with Rochelle, um, which we really got going in um, 2010, mm-hmm. we started open and stayed open. And that's been a very different kind of experience because we both wanted to explore an open relationship. So it was a mutual decision uh, at that point. And it was not made out of desperation. It was made out of curiosity. It was made out of, you know, like, let's see what we can do here. Um, you know, where what can we this, take this? What would this look like? And and we're not, you know, we're, we're not the, the jealous types. Um, mm-hmm. But we found out we actually like having experiences with other people together more than separately. Uh, so that's been kind of interesting, you know, to explore. And I, I'd say in recent, years, in recent years, we've been pretty lazy about that, you know, especially with the coronavirus <laughs> shutdown. It's more like we were just opportunistic about it. Like if, you know, initially we kind of leaned into exploring that directly. And when the opportunity arose, we would, you know, we, we might, you know, have a threesome with somebody or something, something like that. Um, but it, you know, as a long-term, um, exploration, it kind of had its ebbs and flows and stuff. It was just something that kind of wove itself into our life. Um, and after a while, it just wasn't something that we made a big deal about. Uh, but mm. initially it's like very exciting and like what's possible here. And you're very curious about it and you know, what do we do and how do we communicate and how do we be honest and ethical about this? And there's so much baggage, you know, that can come in this from other people. So mm-hmm. the best people to learn learn from were those who had experience with it already, um, people who had already been in open relationships. And mm-hmm. that was that was really great because then we could see how comfortable and settled they were. And that's one thing I've learned is like, even if you explore a path that seems kind of weird for you, for somebody else, it's just normal. It's yeah. like their everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so it helps you be a little bit more chill when you're doing something that just seems extraordinary for you. But um you know, it's just easy peasy for the other person who's already been <laughs> for years. Were there any pitfalls or anything you were trying to avoid and trying to, because that's a huge, and also trying to bring in and make sure you focused on in that new stance, because that's a big shift from the vast majority of the way people look at it and the way the society is really structured. It's, it's getting more, it's getting more fluid and getting more accepting now, especially in major cities. But that's a really big mindset shift to go from this person is my person. This is the one person probably for the rest of my life. And I'm going to fulfill a lot of my, all, all, obviously all of my sexual needs from this person going, then going from, well, I'm going to, the way I look at it now is pursuing deep friendships with people. And, and you may, you may have even coined, coined that, I don't remember. <laughs> and and then just seeing what, what, just pursuing and being open to seeing where things flow from there. What was it like transitioning that? That's a big, I mean, it sounds like you surrounded yourself, like you said, with people who, that was a re, the reality, but there would still be things that would come up, I would imagine. It was kind of mind-blowing. Um, I think the most mind-blowing part of it was meeting people who were absolutely comfortable with it because I was not when I first started exploring it. Mm-hmm. I felt very uncomfortable with it. I was, you know, I was exploring and I was curious about it, but I felt a little weird about it. I remember one time 
I was in a hanging out at some apartment with some friends and this couple there were in an open relationship Mm -hmm. and the, the woman in the relationship, she knew, you know, she and I were connecting a bit and she knew I was into open relationships too. And so she comes over and I think she sits on my lap or something like that right in front of her boyfriend. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I'm I'm just like, uh, is this okay? I remember (laughs) the first time that happened to me and it's weird. The first time that happens to me. So like that, and I realized they were both totally chill about it. They were both totally cool about it. So that helped me feel a little more cool about it. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, this is normal. If you're in an open relationship, this has to be normal. Like, mm-hmm. why not? Now, not everybody's like that. And I realize mm-hmm. there's a lot of variety there. Some people mm-hmm. uh, have a don't ask, to, don't tell policy. They don't want to see their partner doing anything with anybody else. They don't want to hear about it even, you know, but you can go off and do that kind of thing on your own, but they don't want to know about it. Um, so yeah, seeing that kind of, <laughs> you know, seeing somebody express affection towards me in front of her boyfriend, I was like, whoa, okay, that's and so the, it was the leaning into these mind blowing experiences, mind expanding experiences, I should totally, say, totally. was the most profound part of this path. And then realizing that all my limits were just, you know, they're just nonsense. They were self-created. And it's just uh, it's just opinions is what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know, the people think relationships are supposed to be a certain way when in truth, there's a tremendous amount of variety in human relationships. And so then I saw it as an invitation to figure out, well, what really works for me? And I, I find that I have moods, you know, sometimes I might be more monogamy focused and just settle into that kind of pattern. And other times I might want to have more openness and exploration. Um, and it's, it's fine either way. Kind of, you know, was, the, the main thing I, I, I was cautious about is I just don't want to create drama. I don't want to create pain for anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Right. So initially I just very much played it safe. I only, mm-hmm. I only connected with other people in this space if they were already into open relationships mm-hmm. and if they'd chosen that path for themselves. I never tried to convince somebody to get into it right. because I just thought that's fraught with peril because then you're putting pressure on somebody. But everybody has to choose that for themselves. And among those that choose it, whether they're just getting into it and they're curious and they want to explore or they've been on that path for a while, then it's great. Then you're into this space where you know, people are deciding that this is what they want to explore. And then you, and then they're willing to take the risks. They know there could be some hurt feelings. They know they can't necessarily control how they're going to react emotionally or how their partner will, re- will react emotionally. They know the importance of communication, that you got to be honest. At least if you avoid the idiots, you know, the ones who are just, <laughs> that's, they're the ones who are, you know, re- they're really cheating on their partner and they're calling it openness. and. Yeah. Stay away from those people because they're just going to create so much drama. But yeah. when like the, it's clear like a couple involved, it's like they're both open, and you know they can be totally honest about it. That's really really nice. Um, mm-hmm. That's when you really get some cool conscious uh, mind expanding exploration. Well, here's a question that comes up for me, and this is this is something that I've thought about a lot. Is you said you have these monogamous moments. Do you ever feel like oh, if I'm monogamous for too long, then I mean, obviously, at this point, you know what codependency looks like, and you're, you've got the tools to try to avoid that. But do you ever feel like, oh, if, I, if I'm monogamous for too long, then maybe my partner, and I've met Rochelle. She's like one of the most conscious, amazing people, and I would love to have her on the sh- show as well. But do you ever feel like there's a, a risk to being monogamous for too long when you stated that you're, do you ever worry that you fall back into old habits is that a strange question? <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I think it's a good question. I think it's a valid question. Yeah, uh, to be honest, yes, because I feel like okay, I might get rusty at it, <laughs> you know, yeah. like uh, because it's a different kind of mindset of of the exploration of openness, and it, but it's much this. I, I put it in context. It's much the same of any part of life. If you don't do it for a while, you atrophy a bit. You know, your skills go down. Like if you don't do public speaking for a while, then the next time you do have to do a speech. You feel a little rusty at first. Hmm. I've noticed like if I don't do workshops for a while and then I do one after a couple of years off, then I feel a little rusty that first maybe half hour to an hour and then I get back into the flow of it. So it takes <laughs> a little, you know, you need a little time to warm up to it, uh, warm up to the idea. But I think once you've explored it, it is a little bit like riding a bicycle. You know, there's that aspect of it. Maybe not a bicycle with four inch tires, but <laughs> <laughs> nice you know, callback. Some, some kind of bicycle there uh, that usually... You know, maybe if you haven't ridden a bicycle in a few years, you might be feel a little bit shaky at first when you get back on it. But then you're like, okay, now I remember how to do this again. Mm. So it's, you know, you just have to get back into the behaviors and the mindsets. And um, 
you don't have to pretend. You can just say, hey, I'm kind of rusty at this. I haven't done anything with somebody else in a few years. And and uh, now I kind of want to explore with you if you're open to that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just about basically making invitations. So you let the other person decide if they want to explore with you. Um, I like, you know, doing invitations and I like receiving invitations in this in this area. It's it's a uh, hmm. it's cool because then it opens the door to people wanting to explore together. You know, the simple rule is just nobody does anything that feels wrong to them. <laughs> yep. Uh, just just do what feels good to you and don't go don't go past that. Some people are really into pushing their boundaries, and I'm not really <laughs> as a people in this space, just because I feel like there's a lot of areas where. Um, you know, I might end up hurting somebody by accident if mm-hmm. I'm pushing beyond my boundaries. So I want to, I want to stay in an area that feels good and comfortable to me. Mm-hmm. And while, while a lot of people, I think they view this, uh, from a really strongly sexual lens, it's, mm-hmm. it's not really like that. I mean, for some people it is, there's mm-hmm. one friend told me there's kind of like two groups of people. There's people that just want to have the sex and sleep around. Mm-hmm. And there's others who want to explore connection and relating. Mm-hmm. And I'm in that second group. I like to explore connection and relating. And so is Rochelle. We don't, we don't just like randomly, you know, sleep with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, for us, it's like there's a, it's a blurry spectrum between, you know, friend that you don't sleep with and friend that you do. <laughs> uh, you know, it could be anywhere. <laughs> you know, there could be a situation where you might kiss somebody and not go any further. could be a situation where you uh, give somebody oral sex but not go any further. Right. Uh, or it could be somebody where you, you know, have a threesome together and go really far. Um, or you can do, you know, all kinds of weird kinky stuff, too. So it, <laughs> it just depends on what what uh, people want to explore. And as long as you feel like I'm in the zone of what I want to explore and this feels good to me and I'm, you know, I'm cool with this, then you can proceed and you can uh, you can have really interesting variety in your human connections. It's much like friendship. You know, you might have some friends where you just have very intellectual discussions. Right. And you never talk about anything emotional with them. Right. And other friends, you know, you can cry together and hug each other and, you know, comfort each other and console <laughs> each other. And you get really deep emotionally. You might have a heart connection, but not a mind connection, or you might have both. Yep. Yeah, I, th- I think of it like in uh, terms of the four dimensions of relationships, body, mind, heart, and spirit. So, you know, some people might, you might just have a spiritual connection where you feel like you came into each other's lives for a purpose and a reason. And maybe it's even short-lived, hmm. but there was a reason why you were in each other's lives. And maybe you didn't even connect that that well, but mm-hmm. somebody came into your life for a reason. That can happen with like a book you read and you feel mm-hmm. like there's a spiritual connection you have with the author because they impacted you. They affected you. They maybe woke you up in some way, even if you've never met. So that would be an example of just a, like a, a singular spiritual connection. You can have a heart connection where you connect emotionally. You can have a mind connection where you connect very mentally, like having coffee talk with somebody. And you can have a body connection where you do things physically together. Uh, and some relationships have just one of those, some have two, some have three, and some have four. And so there's just a tremendous amount of variety there. Uh, the the most amazing ones are when it's a four-dimensional connection where yeah. you connect it with heart and spirit. That's what I'm uh, seeking to manifest now. Awesome. Well, let's hold that intention for you. Yeah. Perhaps one of your listeners. <laughs> you know, that's my secret. Okay, I'm going to... Oh, I shouldn't share my secret dream. My secret dream is... I So... All your stuff's Creative Commons licensed, right? So I can I can basically I can I can borrow. It's not even it's not even that. All my uh, all, all my blog posts are donated to the public domain, That's so right. they're not even a Creative Commons license. So I kind of rip you off, but I I still credit you. But I don't <laughs> I don't totally fine. I rip you off, but in a loving way. It's a way of full of love. The way that I steal your ideas, because I I try them out, and one of the things that I've noticed seems to work seems to be something that you've either intentionally or unintentionally done well many things but the one that comes up in this specific conversation about relationships is you found a way to and this is just part of the way of leveraging technology i suppose to use your work this body of work that you've created right Steve, to to attract people romantic and not attract really interesting compatible connections and that has been some, the way that you've done that has been really inspiring to me, and I'm seeing that happen more and more as my as my body work gets bigger and as my following gets bigger. And I just think it's a very elegant way to, you know, like because years ago you would say, you know, I don't, I can kind of be socially lazy because people just invite me to stuff and people just contact me. And I think you said something along those lines. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, right. My memory's working today, uh, and I was just like, that is so. 
elegant, right? In a way of you, you let your work be the filter and you can just focus on creating the most value you can. And you don't have to spend as much energy on trying to filter for people that would be great friends or great lovers. Yep. And because the, the critics will select themselves, out of, uh, select themselves out of your audience and the, the people who are most compatible will select themselves into your audience and they'll stay with you. So I, I often think <laughs> of it as like, uh, you know, what can I write today to scare off more of the incompatible people? I, that. I, <laughs> I think that's that. essentially what happened, you know, looping back to the criticism idea. I think that's essentially what happened with the critics and why I get so few, so little criticism these days is because they've all left, you know, something I wrote a long time ago bothered them and they just swore me off and I'm like, I'm never reading your blog again. I thought, okay, great. And then they go in and Google brown rice recipe <laughs> and then you got them. They're back. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they can't go anywhere. There's no hiding from Steve Pavlina. But yeah, no, that, that you, the way you look at that has been, it's like, wow, that resonates with me so much, Steve, of like creating, creating the, the work that I want to create, the, providing the value that's in my heart, and obviously leveling up in my ability to articulate that, leveling up my craft. But then like attracting, I mean, that's how you met your now wife was through your work, right? Yep. She attended my first uh, workshop in Las Vegas in 2009, and we met there. But we didn't really get into a romantic connection until a few months later when we started flirting online um, after, I, after Aaron and I separated. And uh, then we started realizing we were really compatible and we uh, so cool yeah we had a really wonderful you know delicious connection right in the beginning <laughs> it's been uh, fl flowing well ever since but that you know that really blew my mind too because she's canadian and so we lived uh, in different countries yeah and so initially we got into a long distance relationship where we'd spend you know she she could spend a few months with me uh at my house in vegas i would mm -hmm. go visit her in canada sometimes we go travel together. We travel to dozens of different cities together, um, including uh, in Europe and various in Canada and various other places. <laughs> Part because we were just, you know, hopping around the tourist visa <laughs> where we could do it. She could she could be in the USA for six months out of every twelve mm -hmm. without a problem on a tourist visa, and I could be in Canada for a while, and then we would, you know, spend other time. Uh, we we would spend a lot of time apart though. Sometimes we would spend uh, two three months apart in different cities, and so we'd. Uh, you know, connect by Skype or FaceTime and um, keep up that way. Was that tough in the, to getting used to that? Like, you know, falling for somebody and then shit, they can't be in the same room with you for, you know, three, four, five, six months. It was challenging, but we actually did that for eight years before we got married. Um, and I actually really liked it after a while. Like, yes, I would miss her terribly, especially for the first couple of days after she left town. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, you know, we said goodbye to each other at so many different airports. It was just, mm -hmm. you know, became kind of a script after a while. Uh, Got to say goodbye again. We not see each other for a couple of months. Um, and, you know, then we'd start making plans. When are we going to get together again? What city? Um, so it was kind of really uh, interesting mm -hmm. um, how that played out. But I loved the rhythm of having some time on my own to rediscover myself and having time with her. And I, what I really liked is even though it was hard, I liked having the opportunity to miss her when she was gone. And that's what made me really feel like the relationship was strong is that when she was out of town, I always missed her and I always right. craved her presence. And I even did some journaling exercises about like, you know, which is better when she's here or when she's not here. And I kind of <laughs> took, took notes on how happy I was. Like, am I happier when she's away or when I, am I happier when she's here? Because often when she was out of town, then um, like some other woman from my blog would email me and she'd be like, I'm coming to Vegas and I want to connect. And I'd be like, okay. And I swear, live in the dream. People, I think people knew when Rochelle was out of town <laughs> because based on how I, sad your posts were, I wouldn't, I, well, I don't know. I, I wouldn't get those kinds of emails like while she was in town, but like when she would leave town, then it's like suddenly other women would start emailing me. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. Like they were, um, okay. Like you're not necessarily comfortable doing something in an open relationship style while Rochelle was here. But when Rochelle was away, then it's like, okay, the door's open. And I know some people, that's the way their relationship works is it's only, it's a, it's, it's a town based situation of who's in town and he's not. But and you're kind of begging the question though, is like, had you, I mean, obviously by th that point you'd really articulated real clear boundaries of, you know, 
this is, we're going to talk about this and this is acceptable. And I needed, I mean, you know, in as much as you're able to say, what were the boundaries? You don't have to share anything you're not comfortable with, obviously. But um, what was that like getting those boundaries clear over time? I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what you're asking, like about boundaries with between me and Rochelle or some other person shows when up. When you're or? hanging out with somebody else. Yeah. Like what, what was the assumption? I apologize. I should have been more clear. What was the, what was the assumption or the agreement with, with how you're going to connect with other people when Rochelle wasn't there? Oh, just, you know, honesty and talk about, um, you know, what we want to explore together. Um, the, I wouldn't say it was, we're particularly strong on the boundaries. Um, it was just like, okay, I'm connecting with another person, another individual here. So there's another possibility to explore here. They were often very short-lived connections, though. So right. like somebody might come and hang out for a few days, but then they'd leave town again. A lot of people come to visit Vegas for one reason or another, like for a friend's wedding right. or a conference or something like that. So I got a lot of those kinds of connections coming up when somebody was going to be in town for a while. But they would often be pretty short-lived. So sometimes it might just be a mental conversation. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I wasn't really thinking so much in terms of what boundaries are needed. I'd say the main boundary was just that we're only going to do what feels good to people, you know, what feels aligned. Um, and yeah, I mean, then we just explore what we wanted to. You know, sometimes it was just like somebody comes over and we have a, you know, a nice time out, walk on the strip or something. And yeah. that's it. <laughs> so um, other times it could be more than that. Had she been in an open relationship before? I'm trying to remember if Rochelle had like how much she had. Yeah. Yeah. She had, a, she had had previous experience in an open relationship. I, I did not right. for me. That was new. Cause that's one of the challenges that not to make it too personal, but that's one of the challenges that I've found is I feel like when I'm, when I'm, when I'm opening myself up to that, because I am open, um, I might, I might change my mind, but I've been open for a while and finding people that, you know, it, when 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 they haven't been in an open relationship before, have you found yourself in this position, Steve, where you're like, you kind of, you're the one kind of guiding them a bit through it? Like maybe they've read a couple books, but maybe they haven't had an experience of it yet. Or do you avoid connect having open relationships with people who don't have that much experience? How do you deal with that? I'm open to the experience of, you know, ha having connections with people who don't have much experience as long as they can communicate honestly about what they'd like to explore and what their intentions are. Right. Um, and just, and I think the main thing is don't overcommit with somebody. The right. mistake I made, the mistake I made, like definitely one of the mistakes I made uh, when I was exploring open relationships was overcommitting myself hmm. um, where I like end up in bed with somebody before I even decide if I like them or not and pushing too hard <laughs> Oh, buddy. Pushing too hard, too fast. And like just ask, asking and inviting stuff just because it was exciting to ask and invite stuff, you know? <laughs> and then I, I, when like the other person says yes, and then, then you're like, wait a minute, did I, do I actually want to go that far with this person? Like, right. I don't know this person. And, um, especially I, as men, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Oh, you think it's like, exciting. oh, it's a cool thing. Look, you know, I've gotten this far with somebody and, and then you're like, well, how do I feel about it? So I learned to pay a lot more attention to my feelings and slow down, um, go slower. And that's when things started working much better. When I just like stop racing. It's not a race. I mean, it seems like that. It's like you just want to dive in like a kid in the candy store and explore. <laughs> like, oh, boy, let me try this guy. Um, then you're realizing, blah, you know, I don't like this guy. <laughs> uh, and that's where you can get into hurt feelings and stuff where you're like, oh, like, how do you how do you pull yourself out of a situation where you shouldn't have gotten yourself into it in the first place? And, you know, it involves another person and their feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I feel like I I shouldn't have gone that way. You know, I, I crossed a line. So it was, it was about slowing down, you know, so that was like it, it, I guess that that may help answer your question about boundaries is like paying attention to um what feels good to me in the moment and not like getting so stuck in my head thinking about shoulds and how far I should go and goal oriented. Yeah. Don't you feel like being goal oriented in that way can work against you? Definitely. Yeah. You yeah. like having a preconceived notion of how things are going to yeah. go and deciding what you want in advance before you even connected with the person. That's, <laughs> a, that's just wrong. You know, that just doesn't quite work. And it's uh, in your nature to be goal. I mean, you're, you're an amazing goal setter and achiever, Steve. Like you've, achieved amazing goals but maybe that's like the other side of that 
Yeah, I've learned I've learned it's way better just to slow down. And you know, when you're dealing with another person, you want to slow down and listen more, and you want to look for like ding alignment. You know, is there compatibility in what you want to explore? You, it's fine if you have your own ideas of what you want to explore. Yeah, and I certainly did. You know, like I'd like to try this, and I'd like to try this. But do I want to try that with this person? Is that the right situation? Will it feel good? You have to get to know the person, and you have to get to know what their interests are and what what they want to explore. Right. One of my best connections with, with was with somebody who basically told me that she'd read my articles about um, uh, open relationships, and uh, and she was, you know, she told me what she was interested in, and she said she would be up for exploring together. That's so hot. She told me what she was willing to explore, and which was a lot. <laughs> That's like intellectually hot, though. Like for a woman to articulate herself like that and to show her boundaries is so sapiosexual to me. Really is awesome, um, and we <laughs> we had an amazing connection for for a few weeks, and it was just beautiful. Um, and it, and we but we started out with a friendship first. We didn't race into bed together. It was right. like you know start out slow mm-hmm. and get to know each other, and then this opening up can occur. And and uh, that's that's mm. when it works best, I think. When there's you create a connection first and Build you up learn trust a lot of trust. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. trust each. You learn to trust yeah. each other. And then you can go beyond that if you want. Um, and I know some people, they have a totally different mindset about it. You know, mm-hmm. For them, it's just like sleep around a bunch and jump into bed with somebody and don't worry about the feelings aspect and the connection aspect. I like um, and I, I just can't do that. I will, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, will, I will not feel good about it if I, if I you know, um, fall into that kind of situation. Some people are totally fine with it, though. And if, I think it's totally fine to, to do that, you know, sleep around a bunch. If, if you and the other person you're connecting want that if you want that kind of experience yeah i i don't want that kind of experience and i tend to attract women who don't want that kind of experience right so i tend to attract definitely the connection types uh, and i'm one myself so that works <laughs> but then we have to we have to slow down and go slower and mm-hmm. and that uh, that prevents the drama but you're savoring it it's, it's juicy and I, I think yeah we're on the exact same wavelength about that steve like that's where my friend's first thing comes in you know just friendship cultivate the deep friendship and if you have a bunch of chemistry great awesome but you know you know let yep. it breathe something you said earlier reminded me of one of my favorite khalil gobron quotes from the prophet um i'm gonna I, I always paraphrase it it's like just as they are there are and i know you know this one it's wonderful but i always come back to it in relationships just as there are spaces between the pillars and the temple let there also be spaces in your togetherness Yep. I, I love that. In fact, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I just quoted the prophet yesterday in my blog post. Wait a minute. Yesterday? Did I just yeah. Read? But a diff- oh, a different you, yeah. Passage. I read that yesterday. I just quoted the passage on work um, from that work book. Work is love made visible. Yep. Exactly. It's beautiful. So, but I love that passage on relationships too. That's one of my all-time favorite books. Me too. I always come back to that because it. I've definitely fallen into that pattern of, of not letting us space. And then like, oh, this roof is not real stable. But, yep. I think, yeah. you know, I think another aspect of open relationships is being kind. Um, yeah. You know, realizing how vulnerable people often feel when they open up and they invite you into something or they share their feelings or they share their intentions or their interests or their desires. You know, it's a hard space for people to move into. So I think one thing that helps and that can invite more connections is when you just adopt the posture that I'm just going to respond to people who do that with kindness. Even if they're inviting something that you think is a little strange or weird for you or, you know, out of your boundaries, um, just be kind in your response. Like don't reject anybody harshly. Don't be Hmm. to people. Don't slam it back in their face when they're being vulnerable. Um, I think if you adopt that posture, you know, even if you have to decline an invitation or say no, just be honest and compassionate in how you do it. And I think that goes goes a long way. Just deciding that for yourself, I think it makes you it, it makes you feel more deserving of invitations because you know that you know any person that comes into your life, you're going to see that as a privilege, as a gift, mm-hmm. and not like as an entitlement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, that's really important. Well, I want to start to wrap up because you've been very generous with your time. Um, sure. and maybe we, and if you have like five or 10 minutes for a little after show, I like to do a special after show for my Patreon people. Oh boy. My Patreon supporters are awesome. 
but yeah, just is it's just incredible the way that your the direction your career has taken and what you've been able to create. And I do think it is a, a reflection of the character. You know, we we often our exterior world ends up reflecting our interior world. And you've certainly moved around a lot of furniture since you were uh, not you know since since you were since you were nineteen in that jail cell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there anything that you, in terms of, um, in terms of personal growth, is there anything that you would like to close with or anything that you feel would be, if let's say the person listening is like, well, there's a lot of chew on here. There's obviously a lot of, a lot of handles on this suitcase and maybe they're like, what do I do? Like, how do I create a life that I that I feel resonates with my values is the first step. I mean, I suppose a lot of people maybe haven't even gotten clear on their values or maybe they have, and they need to be, is maybe the first step, the clarity writing that down or what would you recommend for people trying to create uh, the life that they want and deserve? What, I think one thing that works really well is just thinking about what kind of character you want to play, like seeing it as a bit of a game world and asking yourself, like if I could play any kind of character in this world, which one really resonates with me? What kind of person would I like to be? And that that's something that really helped me uh, when I was recovering from the the jail experience. Uh, I asked that question, like what do I what do I care about? What do, what do I want to care about? And I re- and I latched onto one value that really guided me for quite a while after that, which was this value of honor. I wanted to be a person of honor. I wanted to be a man of honor. I wanted to be honorable in my dealings, which includes honesty, which includes uh, following through, um, having integrity. And that really helped to guide me in making decisions. And then I just started like vetting my decisions through that through that uh, filter. I started asking, like, what is the honorable thing to do here? Mm-hmm. What would a person of honor do in this situation? What is an honorable goal to set? What, what is an honorable way of dealing with this relationship? What is an honorable way of resolving this conflict? So just picking like one real key value that I wanted to integrate into my character and focusing on that for a while, um, that really, really made a difference. And that helped me set goals that were aligned with that value too. Um, honor, you know, honoring myself, honoring who I am, honoring the the real me that wants to emerge, honoring my strong self inside that feels squelched by some of the destructive things I was doing. How do I get that person to be my real self, everyday self? Uh, so that that was um, something I found just extremely helpful is really getting in tune with you know even just one singular value that mattered a lot to me in life and focusing on that. Sometimes I think we can water down our values by having too many you know, like 10 or 20 things I value, but then which one's most important to you right now? What do you feel most viscerally? Which one needs the most upgrading at this time in your Mm -hmm. life? And for me, I really felt that um, because of the recovery from the stealing phase, because the lack of honor is what got me into so much trouble. So by focusing on honor, I was creating a character who was recovered from that. (laughs) It's like an antidote. Exactly, that was the antidote. (laughs) So for instance, if you're doing meaningless work, uh, to pay the bills, yeah. maybe you should focus on meaning and purpose and make that a huge part of your life. Just run every decision through that. Is this purposeful? Is this meaningful? Will this fulfill me? You know, ask the questions that align with meaning and purpose. And it's not all or if nothing feel, either. Like it doesn't have to be the most meaningful thing ever done, but you can be improving in increments, right? Yeah. You just keep leaning into it. And sometimes you'll fall short. Sometimes you might do the thing that's not meaningful mm. uh, for, for other people. It might be developing the value of courage. Mm. You know, like if you feel you're being too timid and holding back too much in life, just say, how can I lean into courage? <laughs> what would be a brave thing to do today? How can I express courage mm. this week? You know, keep asking the courage questions and make that like your number one watchword for like a year or mm. two and see what that does for you. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, he shared about how he would, you know, he created 13 different virtues. And he would cycle through focusing on them one per week. He would, you know, he had virtues like temperance and, and silence. And, you know, he worked, he worked on them just cycling throughout the year. So in a, in a quarter, a calendar quarter, he could go through all 13 virtues once. So he could get through all 13 virtues four times in a year, but each one, he was only focusing on for one a week. Mm-hmm. And he, he felt like, I think he did that even into his eighties and he tracked, wow. you know, when he, he would fall short and he, 
but he found that while he did improve a bit, he just didn't really get to full mastery on any of his virtues. <laughs> uh, he was always falling short on them. Hmm. And I think one of the reasons is that he only focused on them for you know, on a single virtue for a week at a time. What if instead you just pick one virtue and say, this is it, I'm going to focus single-mindedly on this one for the next year or two or even five hmm. years until you really feel you own it and you've mastered it, and, and you know, or at least begin to master <laughs> it. You feel like it's integrated. Now it's part of you and you're not going to let it go. It's much like developing a long-term habit, like having the long-term habit of exercise and integrating it so well that you're not going to fall off track, or integrating veganism. Mm. You think you would become vegan if you only went vegan for one week every quarter, so four four <laughs> weeks out of a year, yeah, right. separated by like three months, then is that going to make you vegan? Probably not. But if you just go, I'm doing this, you know, and go for a longer commitment, then that can stick. And I think that's true with with values and virtues as well. Pick something, like what's the number one? that you really feel would change your life in a big way and just hammer away at that, you know, chip away at it day after day after mm. day. And maybe journal while you're doing it, you know, see that change. And also, especially stuff with diet, having some social support or accountability, super, super, super helpful. Yep. So, you know, there's a lot of good virtues to pick or values to pick, you know, compassion, courage, honor, love, commitment, self-discipline, mm. You know, so many good, so many good ones out there. Productivity, you could even pick. You want to hammer away at that one? Well, I guess I'll close this by by saying, what are you excited about for the future? Now, you've just you opened Conscious Growth Club for the week, and it won't open again until next year. So I'm sure CGC mm -hmm. is on your mind. You got new people in there, but what is, what is Steve most excited about for uh, <laughs> this strange year? The thing that I love just diving into what fascinates me and the thing that fascinates me right now is creativity and how I can combine creativity and productivity. So our, our next deep dive course that we'll be doing later this year is going to be on creative productivity uh, because creative creativity and productivity often pull at each other. You know, with creativity, you want spaciousness and, you know, an idea generation mm. and expansion and imagination and, you know, stretch your mind. Mm. But with productivity, you need to turn it into action steps and focus mm. and mo keep moving things forward. And you're pushing the creative energy towards conversion, you know, uh, towards convergence, you know, towards completing something. Um, and those often compete with each mm. other. Um, so I want to I want to explore that space a lot. And one of the projects um, that I, I mentioned to you earlier that I really want to undertake this year is writing a novel, which I've never done before. Oh. And I know you have. Yep. I wrote three. That that's an awesome thing. Yeah, three. It's, I had an idea for your novel, awesome. by the way, as we were talking uh, ten minutes ago, and then I forgot really? to say. It. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So this is my okay. I'm gonna. This is my dream novel by Steve Pavlina. Okay. And this is this is my well. Not not everybody's gonna agree with this, but this is my show. Um, my dream novel because I'm so fascinated by alternate, just different kinds of relationship structures, and I'm so fascinated by by people who are non-monogamous, ethically non-monogamous, which people should, should Google if they're not familiar, um, would be a novel that explores, explores that. Like, because you've had interesting experiences, and if you were able to, to take some, like, because one of the things I did with 10,000 Hours in Paradise, it's, it's all true, but I had to change everybody's names. I'm saying abstract it out more than that, but that would be my like, wow, that'd be fascinating to see, to see that through your eyes, maybe all fictional scenarios, but like the growth lessons that you experience through being open, that would be such a fascinating, if you were able to novelize those growth lessons, <laughs> that, okay. that's, that, I think it'd be fascinating to read about, <laughs> that's just me. It's a possibility. Um, but I'm sure you got a lot of yeah, ideas. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of the book uh, "Stranger in a Strange Land," which I which I read years ago, which does have like some non-monogamy in it, I believe. <gasps> I don't think I've read that yet. Oh well, there you go. I should. Put that on. <laughs> I'm gonna write. Thank you, sir. I've had it in my list. Sure, it's kind of interesting because that just seems like it. It almost seems like not a big deal to me. Um, I guess because it just feels normal and right. natural. You've totally calibrated. Uh, to almost it. like writing a. It sort of would feel like writing a book about somebody having multiple friends. Right. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you have more than one friend? Okay. <laughs> oh, and then combine it with they're in a reality that, oh, oh okay, here's, okay, I'll, I'll stop in a second. But, like, maybe in the <laughs> novel, they, because you said you wanted to, well, you can pick my brain about this in the after show, but in the novel, 
they make some breakthrough like Elon Musk Elon Musk can be in the novel because he's uh, he's literally from a novel and he's been inserted into our reality I, because maybe he makes some breakthrough and they prove somehow they prove I don't they probably could never do this but maybe in the novel they prove that it's that we're in a simulation so then it kind of shatters all these belief systems on earth and people have to reevaluate their belief system <laughs> That would be interesting. <laughs> like they know it's a subjective reality. Like you're in like this weird, I don't know, crazy idea. That's the tr that's the tricky part is like coming up with a topic that really feels edgy to me. Because um, I've noticed like when I do you know products, courses, workshops, anything, even blogging, it works best if I write at the edge of what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. If I write about stuff I learned and figured out five years ago or ten years ago, then it's it's no longer edgy for me. It's not as exciting and interesting or as present moment to write about. Um, and so I think it's probably going to be true with a novel as well, mm -hmm. that I have to figure out where I am at the time when I start writing it. And so if I pick an idea now, it'll probably be dead by the time I actually get to writing this. Because I, I think this is still a few months away before I'll start on this project because I've got a bunch of other projects I want to finish first. Totally. So I'll have to just like get a read on where's the edge for me now. What do I want to explore through through writing? Well, and that's the interesting thing, too, is depending on how fast you write, you write pretty fast, but the process of, you know, it's good to live with a story for a year, I feel. It's good to, to breathe and, and live in that world and and reflect on it and let it get into your dreams because then you'll have, you'll pull out stuff and come to conclusions about what you've written, you know, especially once you finish the rough draft, you'll get a new read on what you've written and you might have a whole different dimension to what you've written that you didn't realize. Then you go in and the editing and pull out a new dimension and you can have something that's even more deep and strange and amazing than you even anticipated originally. Yep. If, you, if you're lucky, but well, I'll let you go, Steve. This has been such a wonderful conversation. And like I said, if you, if you have a little bit, I'd love to talk in a bit of an after show, but yeah, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. I, I so value it. And if people want to learn more about your work, I suppose the best place is stevepavlina.com. Yep, they can go to the website, maybe read some of the latest blog posts, or just go to the archives of the blog and browse through whatever titles appeal to them. There's a wealth of information there on on almost every aspect of personal growth that I can think of. So. Thanks again for coming on the show, Steve. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. I hope your <laughs> listeners enjoyed it. I think they did. I did. It's my show. <laughs> Sounds good. Me too. Oh, my God. We had so much fun with that interview. And now there's even more. We actually did two hours of after show, the first half an hour of which is going to be free. All of it's going to go on my Patreon. Go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Hello Crusoe. Hello, C-R-U-S-O-E, to get the after show. We talked for two hours. I want to say thank you so much, Steve, for sharing literally four hours of your afternoon with me. It was it was amazing. Um, so what's next? How are you going to shape your character moving forward? I definitely have a lot to think about after doing this interview. Also, if you've enjoyed this interview, there are more, and iTunes is the easiest way to find them. Although, you can subscribe via Android, you can subscribe via direct RSS. All the links are at my website, Mythily, that's M-Y-T-H dot L-I, as in lizard iguana, as I always say. All you gotta do is search for Aravinda Show on iTunes. It's A-R-A-V-I-N-D-A, and it's really easy to find. And if you use Instagram or Twitter, I'm at Hello Crusoe on there. And I post samples of interviews on there when they come out. So it's always a good way to just see what's coming up. I also post behind-the-scenes glimpses of my life here on the Big Island of Hawaii. And be sure to check out StevePavlina.com. Check him out on Facebook. Check him out everywhere you can find him. He has over a 1,000 free articles on his website. He has the Conscious Growth Club. The work he's doing is incredible. Of course, all these links will be available in the show notes for this episode over at Mythly. That's M-Y-T-H dot L-I, of course. And all you got to do is click on Aravinda Show or Aravinda Spacecast, depending on my mood that month. <laughs> and you'll be able to find the show notes for this show and all the great shows, as well as free samples of my books, including my Hawaii Action Memoir, 10,000 Hours in Paradise, 
the totally true story of what happened when I moved from Wisconsin to Lower Puna here on the Big Island of Hawaii. A story so true, I had to give everyone pseudonyms and so full of magic, you won't be able to put it down. You can actually get the first 20% of that book by going to my website and clicking on Get Three Free Books. And it's really easy to find in the menus. I also have Tropical Sci-Fi in there. I've got three novels up. Something that we actually talk about in the after show for this. Steve is going to be working on his own fiction, which I'm really, really excited about. But if you enjoyed this interview or any of my interviews, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes and share it. But leave a review on iTunes. When you leave a review on iTunes or Apple Music, same thing these days, it ranks the show higher and it gets these interviews to more people. Even a one-sentence review, seriously, helps more than I can say. I'm Andrew Crusoe. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you in the after show. And aloha. Ha.